Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Well, hello, everybody. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos. And we have a really special guest today, the managing partner for critical infrastructure at Optiv, the one, the only, Sean Tufts. Welcome to the show, yes. Sean. Yeah, welcome, <laughs> welcome, Sean. In the house. In the house. Thanks for having me. In guys. the house. Finally. Finally <laughs> in the house. So, Sean, before we get going, maybe you could give some of our listeners uh, a bit of background about you and how you came up and, and you know, what you do at Optiv. Oh, yeah. Great question. How far back do you want me to go? Go, go the all the way the origin all story? the way sean yeah man let's hear <laughs> we it, want sean. the Come sean on. origin story so there's a really small corner of the world that has like i think there's six of us that are former nfl players that got into cyber somehow so there's me there's a guy dark trace pizza Rett is uh he's been i don't know where he is now but yeah there's like five or six of us that all got our start on i was a linebacker for the carolina panthers it was funny i got out of football someone asked me that day like why'd you leave the NFL? And I was like, the collective will of 32 NFL teams, they, they all decided <laughs> I was done. I disagreed. Um, but yeah, when I got out, I was like, you know what? I don't want to be in tech. I don't want to be in oil and gas. And I don't want to be in, um, yeah, those were the two. And then I totally screwed that up. I'm in bowl. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Look where you ended up. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, now your 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 primary focus is on on critical infrastructure. So what what exactly does that mean? What what are the areas that you're you're really diving into down at Optif? Uh, you know, it's changed a lot actually. Um, and people are going to write books about COVID, and I guess I'll you know throw more fuel onto that fire. When we were doing, so I worked at General Electric for a couple of years. That's where I learned cybersecurity. Um, built a couple of wind farms in my day. Worked at Baker Hughes. Worked at a couple other spots. And I got a. We'll we'll go back to the cult, to the origin story first. I got a cold email from GE that said, hey, we just bought this company called World Tech. Who knows our clients that wants to learn cyber? I was like, that sounds like way more fun. So I hopped in. Uh, mm. We were doing nothing but oil and gas, heavy utilities. That was it. That was what we thought okay. OT, IoT security was at the time. And then I tell you what, man, COVID hit. And that same, that next week after Trump shut the world down, and then that next week, I had four conversations with toilet paper companies. All they were all like, wow, hey, uh, we don't course. know what to do. Apparently we're critical infrastructure <laughs> and we have nothing and we need something. So <laughs> we ran oh, out of trees. <laughs> well, it was symptomatic. And then it's been these weird waves that are actually still continuing um, for a while. Obviously we went to pharma, right? And then it was logistics and shipping and, and distribution centers. And then like the raw poultry crowd came and then the raw meat crowd came. Like it was, it's been really interesting waves watching new entrants come into the market and say, hey, we're, we, we need to get our stuff together. We have all these physical assets. We don't know what to do. And it's, it's been an interesting ride since whatever that was in May, April 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we wow. really redefined critical infrastructure during COVID. Well, of course. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> so, Sean, tell us, like, so how did that then you come to kind of joining Optiv? Talk a little bit about, you know, your time there and, I mean, Obviously, right now you're, you know, you're certainly 
considered a, an industry expert on the OTICS side and critical infrastructure side. What did, what did that look like? How did you get to Optiv? And talk a little bit about your journey there to where you are today. Oh, yeah. I took a, I took a great exit from GE. I went out in style. Um, actually, there's a guy at, <laughs> um, at one of our vendors we work with who watched me get laid off and I didn't know it. I went up and met who was my new boss and she was like five foot one and she turned around. I met her, shook her hand. It was nice. Turned around. And she made this face, I guess, that was like, oh. And then I was gone the next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, no. <laughs> so I wrote a pretty good layoff out of GE. And you know, we've had a lot of our peers that are kind of in similar situations right now and tight economies, tough tech mm -hmm. market. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, I was so concerned and uptight and just really anxious about getting laid off and thinking, you know, you're a failure and all those kind of things. Best thing that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. A guy over at Fortinet, uh, Michael Hooper, shout out. He called a sales leader over here and said, hey, this guy knows a ton about a market you guys stink in. Bring him in, see if mm -hmm. he can make a fit. And yeah, I, I started actually at Optiv in a sales role because I knew about all oil oh. and gas and power and all those kind mm -hmm. of things. So I got all our Greenfield accounts and they were like, good luck. <laughs> and we started setting <laughs> up relationships with new vendors coming to the market and new vendors and new vendors. And it kept getting bigger and bigger. And we kept finding more opportunities for bigger OT plays. And then my peers kept calling me and then their peers kept calling. Me, and then it was like, okay, fine. Can I just, can I just do this for a living, please? Can I just run the program? So in that time we grew to about a $50 million program between tech sales and, and services where we're, you know, we're managing 3000 sites for clients today. We're you know doing wow. risk assessments left and right. It's been, been really fun. You know, it's a rare breed of uh, individual that can speak to the people that are wearing hard hats as well as the people that have pocket protectors. And not everybody mm -hmm. can make that transition. Um, are you seeing that? And I'm just talking about the personas in this place. Are you seeing a, a greater blend of the OT security folks and the IT, traditional IT security folks more so than kind of the early days, if you will, of the of the space? Yeah, the early days was like it was a Fight Club episode, right? Remember that scene when um, mm -hmm. when a guy's knocking on the door and he's like, if he's tall, tell him he's too tall. If he's short, tell him he's too short, that kind of thing. Yeah. All the OT heads, when we first started this, when we were doing active scanning 15 years ago, they were like, no, get out of here, come back later. And we kept coming back, kept coming back. Mm -hmm. I think right now it's, prob it's very dependent on industry, but I think it's probably 50-50 where we have, I think, bridged those gaps and started to empower people that don't look like your traditional PLC engineer um, that came from a vulnerability management side, that came from a SOC, that are starting to be allowed in and made friends with the, the OT heads that were really stodgy and kicking us out of rooms. So mm -hmm. depending on the environment, right? Distribution centers, a little more forward-leaning. Hospitals, definitely more forward-leaning. Refining and midstream, still a little behind. So that's probably like a, like a two to one maybe. But I think it's starting mm -hmm. to change. We're starting to get more entrance, which is good. Where's toilet paper land? Because now you've really got me fixated on Just that. right on the TP. Um, <laughs> <laughs> ah, they're, they're coming around. I'll say that. They're, 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 they're coming, coming around. around. They're coming. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean, I mean, one of the things, you know, that on the, on the OTICS side, even whether it's industrial as well, is I think one of the challenges that we see a lot is, is just the various owners, the various teams that all have something to do with the whole idea of securing, you know, the OTICS, the kind of industrial IOT estates. Um, and, you know, that, that's a serious challenge. We see that time and time again. Do you see that? And what are some of the primary various teams that you tend to kind of work with when you're, you know, 
in some of these accounts with, with some of these different types of uh, organizations, right? Yeah, it's bimodal. Uh, the first kind of teams we see is a cross-functional like band of identity network engineering folks that, that come together and say, hey, we want to take this on. They'll usually mm-hmm. deputize someone from the network team, maybe someone from engineering to go kind of be that leader and take the first arrows mm-hmm. in the back. <laughs> and then the other type we see is, um, and we've been seeing this more and more lately, where they hire a really smart person. They say, hey, go fix all of the IoT, OT stuff. And the first thing that person does is say, I'm one person. Uh, yeah. I need to go reach out and make friends there. And, you know, sometimes they're successful with setting up a program. Sometimes they, you know, they just kind of wear their one hat and try to make incremental change. So we've seen both work. We've seen both fail. A lot of it depends on the anointment of the the larger business. So, Sean, you know, it was interesting. I was in uh, I was in Dubai last year, and uh, I know John's going to be uh, out there uh, in the not too distant future. And of course, critical infrastructure when it comes to power and energy, oil and gas, huge, huge opportunities there. And what I noticed was I was seeing a lot, a much higher percentage of teams in the Middle East that had OT security teams specifically just focus on OT security. And they were working very closely with the cybersecurity teams on the IT side and things like that, but it was like a dedicated group. So it wasn't like everyone kind of sort of had a responsibility, but it's really the cybersecurity team running it. It was like, look, there is a dedicated OT security group. Are you, is is that just a, you, you know, a one-off that we're seeing it more out there? Or are you seeing that uh, across the the States as well? You know, geopolitically, we saw a lot more movement from cyber and critical infrastructure outside of the United States first. So going back to when I was at GE, we saw a lot more commitment from people in the Middle East. We saw a lot more commitment from people in South America, Asia. There are some reasons behind that. We've always tried to kind of identify what that leading piece was. Sure, some of it's distant to a threat actor. Some of it's... um, IT's got a lot of really mature shops in North America. Like, we're, we're pretty dang good. So... We haven't mm-hmm. seen um, some of the legacy, legacy, legacy units that we would see in, in you know, more developing countries. Don't know where Dubai sits in that. But so we saw them actually come together faster and they come together with more organization outside of the US, which is, I, I mm-hmm. thought was funny and we could never really figure out. Um, so yeah, we do see that in the Middle East. We do see that in, um, we haven't seen it in Europe, actually. Europe is probably the last one to come. They're starting to organize a little better over there now. Huh. Um, I'd say they're maybe, you know, point one step behind us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always wondered when it came to that, because you think of you, you think of some of these regions, I won't call it any specific countries, but they're, they didn't have the most advanced infrastructure. So the infrastructure that they are deploying now, or they've recently deployed, in some cases, a lot newer than the stuff we've had in the US because we've, we've had just had it longer. And the thing, the analogy that I tie it to is like credit card readers, right? I mean, they, they have had, had more advanced chip readers and things like that in Europe and parts of South America and Southeast Asia long before we had it in the US because we already had this, this massive infrastructure um, and investment that was made in these older solutions. So we said, well, we're not going to swap them out until, you know, they're, they've expired. I always wondered if that was really what was happening for some of these big manufacturers or oil and gas and power energy as well. They're like, man, we're still depreciating this. And these turbines aren't like $5. They're really expensive. Mm-hmm. So before we throw something new in here, we've got to get the life out of it. So there was this this combination of really new stuff as well as 
pretty old. Some stuff that was really mm-hmm. decades old. And you didn't really see that much of that in other parts of the world. You know, I'll co-sign that. Um, I don't have any data behind that. That's my experience as well. We see a global company and you start looking at their firewalls. For some reason, there's more modernization in, in the more developed countries, Europe, US. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that is a true, I don't know if that's a cause and effect thing. I have no idea. But yeah, that's what I've seen as well, Brian. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned a little bit ago, Sean, kind of the geopolitical side, right? And recently I wrote a blog just with like all of the, you just look at the activity. If you go back even a few months for something like CISA and the kind of advisories they have, just the pace of those. I think at the time I wrote my blog, I think I looked back just a couple months and I think I said there was close to 60 different advisories on you know, critical infrastructure, industrial PLCs, things like that. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the thought was, geez, I mean, is this at the same time, you, you, you kind of saw a little bit targeting that. And I think from a geo, geopolitical perspective, is it fair to say that some of the geopolitical things around the world could potentially mean these things are a bit more targeted? I mean, how do you feel about that and just some of the activities and focus on either it's nation states or some of these cyber criminal gangs focusing on industrial and critical infrastructure? Is that, is that real? Oh, yeah, it's very real. What do you think? Um, actually, interesting, yeah. the, uh, the numbers have gone down on the groups that are attacking oil and gas and utilities which is a surprise. Mm. Um, what they saw, I, I'm conjecturing, I don't have any idea what's going on places I don't want to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. When they saw that Colonial Pipeline is almost an act of war at some point, right? They were like, ooh, this seems like a bad fit for ransomware. Like we're, we're treading mm-hmm. on some waters that could get very um, accelerated quickly. So mm-hmm. that was the inflection point where we saw them targeting other soft targets that wouldn't necessarily carry that same weight. So that's where we saw manufacturing, ah, distribution centers. Um, yep. And there's a lot of great research done by some people really, really seeing how much more there is. I also think too that manufacturing and, and those other markets and hospitals, um, softer targets, they haven't moved as fast. Yeah. Um, yep. So they, there was an easier target and less notable. So yeah, I think those two things are, are very true. We've seen that, that effort um, pivot a little bit in the last two years. That, and real quick, fine. It, has that resulted and manifested itself in a bit and more urgency with your clients, or is the desire to kind of secure this stuff pretty much a, a steady state? What are you seeing? Uh, the whole market's in this weird staring staring match. We know how big the problem is. We know the potential mm-hmm. impact, but it's still a six sigma event. So for a lot of companies coming forth and really committing from a personnel mm-hmm. perspective, because FTEs are still our most, most expensive thing. From a yeah, personnel yeah. perspective, from a new technology perspective, from a new process perspective, from pulling off network people, pulling off identity people, pulling off cloud resources into other projects. It's a big ticket item for a lot of operational people who don't know how to manage that yet. So we still mm-hmm. have this Six Sigma event we're trying to protect against with a really big paycheck. So there's still a lot of hand wringing between those two. Yeah. I found that super interesting 
the the way you're kind of explaining that hey they 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 targeted somebody and they're on you know maybe utilities or oil and gas that was like right on the edge of maybe the response being a kinetic attack right and if prudence mm-hmm. dictates that if i attack somebody that has the capability of calling up the navy seals to attack me back maybe i change my targets that i'm going after right um but now like you said they're they're kind of moving to these soft targets and my question on that is so oil and gas, power and energy, pharma, maybe transportation, a few others. I, I, I think they've, over the last few years, have, have really gotten it more, certainly so than uh, they have historically. But now that they're moving to these other targets, uh, maybe on the healthcare provider side and, and other arenas that have these IoT and, and OT large investments in this area, are they having to kind of re-go through that education process again? Or did they learn from all the other guys? Nope. Didn't learn from anybody guys at all. Um, still yep. walking into, um, <laughs> still walking into a gate. It's it's actually invaluable. Um, if you know, no no airport wants to hear how the ship channel is doing something right. There's just like this hubris there. But mm-hmm. when you can get someone to to take a step back and listen and learn and say, look, this was what we saw. These were the activities we felt. This was the the culture you were trying to break. There's a ton of commonality there. The Hospital med tech is no different than the PLC engineer in a power plant from a, 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 mm-hmm. a Pavlovian perspective, right? I need uptime. I need my thing to be available and I need to ensure it's not going to hurt anyone. And if I can do those things, then I don't care what you do. But if you don't tell me a great narrative on how to maintain my job while you're doing your cute cybersecurity stuff, then I'm not going to let you in my building. But we're still mm-hmm. facing that. Yeah. You know, obviously, Sean, we focus a lot on the actual devices. These are smart devices. And when you think in terms of OTICS and industrial environments, there's a whole load of these and a lot of different types of devices. I'd love to get your thoughts just about some of the devices themselves. You know, whether it's PLCs, HMIs, you've got environmental sensors, you've got gateways, you've got ruggedized devices, robotics. I mean, all these, and, and a blend of that, of course, is things like cameras and, you know, ruggedized printers, which some might not even consider in the scope, but they're actually can be pretty critical, right? Um, When you see some of these devices, Sean, like, how do you think in terms of how vulnerable they are? And like, what are some of those that come to to top of mind for you? Like some of the basic critical vulnerabilities you see relative to the state of these devices? I separate them into things we can handle today and things we can't. we just got okay. done with the engagement in the Ohio River Basin somewhere. 10 million square feet of manufacturing. They had 20, what was it? Almost 30,000 CVEs of nine or higher. Wow. What are you going to wow. do with that? Right? Bring in yeah, a big yeah. firewall, set it on the edge, and make sure it's good. Force everything through it, right? They're not going to, and we as consultants or technologists are not going to advise them like, hey, you should really go refresh every Windows box here. That's, that's just not going to happen today, tomorrow, whenever. So from mm-hmm. there, we pivot to, okay, let's identify the, the crown jewels. What are the most important things? For one of them, it was um, a recent client. It was the garage door. If that garage door didn't open, product wasn't going out the door. And they could move the product manually wow. if they had to, if they could get the door open. So that was a bit, and then also there's a hmm. funny contractual moment because that's when the money changed hands. <laughs> when the oh. product came out the door, that's when the check cashed. So that yeah. was another thing. Then the other side of the fence is within that same environment, let's say, there are things that we can fix today. We can go after the camera systems, we can go after the phone systems, the print servers, the, mm-hmm. the little IoT guys that 
aren't hard to solve, aren't mission critical. Mm -hmm. Camera goes out for 25 minutes. That's not going to be, in theory, a a huge deal. Let's go find those things and wipe them out. Because all too often, the access point to those hard devices are the not hard devices. So from a risk perspective, let's take down the entry points. Let's take down the known vulnerable devices that we can easily go fix. The camera's running telemetry, right? That's an easy one. We should be able to walk in Mm -hmm. and wipe out that entry point from a threat. What do you call it? Threat threat thingy. How big your threat is. Mm -hmm. What's that called? Yep. Yep. Like the attack surface. The attack surface. Thank you, John. CMO. Yep. (laughs) The attack thingy. Is that what I said? The attack thingy? Oh. The, what, which there the it attack is, like, thingy, aka attack surface. Yep. Everybody knows yep. that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, Sean, I, I, I got to ask because as you're going into these, I, I, it just keeps on ringing off in my head that you you must have seen some stuff. Um, are there any <laughs> like interesting stories from the trenches you can anonymize and, and share with us? Just crazy stuff you've seen. We were sent to go find uh, a bunch of highway cameras in a. Quasi-federal environment. Um, Three-letter acronym. There was retail locations that they had set up that were part of the base and whatever they had. They were really worried about all the HickVision and all the stuff that we can't have anymore. Sure, Sure, okay, let's go find Mm -hmm. those. Found them. They were doing dumb things. Cool. In the process, though, we found a bunch of smart TVs. A bunch. Smart TVs that were from good known locations, smart TVs from bad, dumb locations, like all the bad problems. But we found four of them that were actively streaming video out to Southeast Asia. So they just turned the camera on and were just trying to see what they could see. And we lost a little bit of traction after we kind of identified it and saw where it was going. We were, we, uh, incident response team came in, NDAs, all that kind of stuff. But it was, um, it was eye-opening to think that they were just ready to wait and watch and maybe someone with credentials walks through. Maybe someone Mm -hmm. has a conversation they shouldn't, right? That was interesting. Yeah. And I mean, since the FCC literally, you know, banned the sale, the importation, the distribution of a lot of these devices, I mean, it, we're kind of seeing that suddenly get some attention from clients just because they want to know, oh my God, do I have any of these? Is that, are you seeing just in general, which you wouldn't even, again, think I'm in an OT industrial environment. I'm talking about banned cameras, but is it, is that something people care about? It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of places that have, obviously, the, um, you know, the straight commercial enterprises mm, don't really care that much. Anybody with a relationship with the government cares a lot. Um, yeah. We had one of the Department of Corrections in the state, it was pretty funny, where we, we were working the IT staff and, and they were like, yeah, we don't have any highway cameras or heck vision or I forgot what it was, the, the other one. Mm-hmm. And then we, we started looking at the Department of Corrections and they had a lot. And so oh, the guy yeah. gets on the phone from the SOC and he's like, um, you, you guys don't have any of those, um, those, those foreign entity cameras, right? We, we talked about that, right? There's none in your environment. And he was like, yeah, no, none. Like, I, I see 50. <laughs> oh, where? Um, what, how do you, what do you, what are you looking yeah. at? And it was funny too, cause they were all named funny things like, um, you know, uh, like we couldn't see into the cameras and see the video feeds, but there was like, you know, um, workout gym, like there's weird, weird things. We're like, what are these cameras? Straight off, they were, they were right in the wrong places. And and then on the other side of the Pacific, they have a reality show called American Prisons. <laughs> That's where it's all streaming from. <laughs> you know, you know what's interesting about the the, the Hick Vision cameras is I, I was at a, a 
a security event. It was it was physical security. It was logical security. It was they even had these hovercrafts. It was it was really interesting. Uh, but the number one or one of the number one sponsors of the conference, and actually to get into the facility, you had to walk under their, their arch, their branded arch, was Hickvision. So even though even though it's not uh, you know it's not welcome here in the U.S. anymore, man, it, worldwide there's still a lot of that stuff. And uh, they're they're not necessarily pulling it out, which is is just crazy. You know, uh, money wins, right? I mean, it it meets the feature functionality. You get, they work. You get video feed from it, um, yep. and it's the right price. So a yeah. lot of people default to that. You know, security isn't still isn't the top of mind for every single entity that's that's buying product. And until we change that, we we're going to live in that world still. Yeah. Well, sure enough. Now, do you think that, you know, there's there's been so many government regulations and, and different frameworks and guidelines and best practices that are being pushed, whether it's, you know, NIST or CIS or, or ISO or NERC or all, all these things that are out there? Is is it just is it just word salad for advanced persistent auditors to come in and give you a headache? Or do you see that actually moving the needle and having an impact on increasing security within these organizations? No, I see it moving the needle. And I see people okay. that are invested into NIST branching out into the IoT version of NIST, into the critical manufacturing version of NIST. So from 53, mm. you jump to 82. And I think when mm. you, when we've worked with clients who have that, a, a strong CIS or whatever they want to do, when we turn that lens on it and say, okay, you're meeting that. And it's really important to you, right? Like, yeah, we got to do that from our critical controls perspective. Like, okay, well, you're missing all these ones. Like, here's a whole nother batch that you're not aware of. That to me has been a big needle mover because we can show and highlight, here's a standard, here's your deviation from it. You believe in the standard. And then on the right hand, you're great. On the left hand, you're awful. Let's, let's balance that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially on clients where, yeah. you know, uh, some of these companies, they don't have venture funds. They don't have a SaaS platform. They make things and if yeah, the yep. making of the things gets disrupted that's a problem for the company right and so when we can protect that path and show them that they're they're not protecting it today that's been a that's been a, a force multiplier yeah and i mean you mentioned a word right there disruption right and then earlier you you mentioned kind of the the days of active discovery active scanning right and you know the drill whenever we're talking to anyone on the OT industrial side, you know, and it comes up to the whole idea of discovery and scanning, um, you know, active's a terrible, terrible, bad word. And we kind of know why there's been some bad things that have happened. And, you know, you can't just throw a legacy, you know, scanner at, at this stuff, right, for multitude of reasons. Um, but do you see that changing, Sean? I mean, it, it seems there's a little bit of a crack in that ceiling now where some are kind of coming back to the idea that if you, as long as you can do this maybe safely and not disrupt the business, we might be open to it. Is that a fallacy or is there anything moving on the that side? I see that very live right now. A lot of our passive scanners, okay. great partners, they're conceptually... You know, you're working on the margin. You're working not in the kernel of a of a device. You're you're taking some assumptive mm -hmm. guesses, and we've gotten great data there and really impactful data. Um, but we're still missing a, a a chunk of it. We're still missing. We've got the always on component, but we need to be able to go interrogate these devices faster, and to turn things over mm -hmm. quicker and easier, and get a, a correlation point 
right? Because there's still some things that come through like, hey, what is this? Are we going to spend two weeks trying to go research this or do we just want to flash it and mm-hmm. go? I think that the passive group has really broken down the need for better data. And in my view, having a passive and having active in the same breath where you can combine those two and do a one-two punch is really, really mm-hmm. valuable. And the, the new ways we're doing that are so much smarter. You know, uh, the, the ways we used to interrogate a device was just hammer it until you get it. And then you're either going to kill the mm-hmm. device or you're going to get what you need out of it, right? Well, that doesn't work in, um, that doesn't work in any vehicle. So let's be smarter about what we look at in that device. Let's address the device how it wants to be addressed. Once we do resolve what it is, let's move off it, not come back. We don't need to punish these things Mm -hmm. that aren't able to take that beating. Let's be smarter about it and release that really great valuable tool in a way that can be absorbed. And we've seen a real big growth of people wanting that and and kind of Mm -hmm. thirsting for that last, that that most important bit of data at last mile. Yep. Yeah. That's that's encouraging. Yeah. Certainly finesse is needing is needed. I mean, we've, we've seen the waterboard approach, uh, in it forever, but when you start doing it to IOT and OT devices, they, they just roll over and say, I'm out. <laughs> yep. That's it. Um, well, and you, you know, operators love it too. Mm-hmm. Well, let me go back. Um, yeah, I w- I'd say love is a, a new term, but they really <laughs> want that data. They, they very much want it and they've never yeah. been able to get it. And they've always been mad about it. So when you can show them that you're empathetic to their, their device legacies and you've got a way to, to play then they really want to react to it. So they're going to put you through your paces to make sure the active scanning piece can turn on in their environment. But once that happens, they're going to run wild and really start to do the information and the research they've been wanting to do for decades. And they just haven't been able yeah. to. Yeah. I mean, uh, what was the big vulnerability a couple of years ago? Oh yeah, the, uh, the safety instrumentation systems from, um, from Triconix, right? Yeah. No one knew how big those were. No one knew where they were. If you were able to in real mm-hmm. time say, okay, I'm going to go find all these in my environment in 15 seconds. Well, now you can report to your board. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, yeah. we had one client in the oil and gas space who's, we asked that same question. How many of these devices do you have? Somewhere between three and 3,000. We don't know. Where are they? <laughs> uh, Earth, mostly. Uh, <laughs> they had no idea. And now you can get that data in, you know, a push of a button or two. Yeah. Yeah, you know, having visibility is, you know, we've been talking about that in security since I think people were talking about security, Uh, but it's just, it's so foundational on this side of thing because these devices are spread out in these strange locations and there's a bunch of you know to to john's point earlier you've got these ruggedized devices sitting in a shack connected outside of a dam in the middle of nowhere covered with black widows and and stuff and just sitting there running and operating who knows what's on it the people that installed it are long gone all right and it's uh mm-hmm. it, it, se- it seems to be one of those big problems um out there uh are you are you seeing that organizations now and certainly working with with optive and uh to are they getting their arms around that are they at least getting to the point where they they're able to take steps to find out where these devices are or is it still just it's it's a blank space and i just don't know what i've got the groups that are actually really pushing that you wouldn't expect are the incident response groups because they're like guys Mm -hmm. if we if if you come to me and tell me that we have this problem and we, we we have no other telemetry I'm, I'm going to tell you to go find telemetry before I get involved. And yeah. they're putting up their internal SLAs to say, we're not playing with you unless you play with us. So we're going to just not do that work. And people are like, oh, well, no, you have to do that work. And they're like, give me the data. If you can give me the data, yep. then I can put my best of practice teams in play. And a lot of the yep. new like DFAR 
component. It's funny when you read the the OTDFAR part, right? Yeah. First two chapters are all about asset inventory. That's it. That's all they need. Yeah. yeah. And they're not worried about advanced forensics. They're not worried about quarantining. They're not worried about all the things we see on the ITDFAR. They're worried about solely, do we know what we have? How are you going to go research it? That's it. And I think that's yeah. a really big, when I read that, it was a really big eye opener for me. Like, how big is this problem? We really need to solve it. Yeah. And from there then, Sean, what a big question. Obviously, a lot of, like you said, the passive kind of tools, great tools, right? Amazing stuff. Very detection based, right? What are you seeing relative to an appetite to actually begin to think about in addition to seeing what you have in the visibility and the discovery to actually go do something about it. So some of the underlying vulnerabilities, are you seeing an appetite now for to people to actually say, I get the detection stuff, I have it all over, but at the same time, I, I do need to begin to think about going to fix some of this stuff, whether it's default passwords and credentials or the firmware, you know, like you said, telnet's wide open, whatever it might be. What are you seeing there? John, I can't tell you that in the last three months, starting at Thanksgiving, October timeframe, or we started hearing clients say more about, hey, I don't need another assessment. Assessed to death. Everyone's always been assessed to death. They, they never weren't assessed mm -hmm. to death, right? But they're mm -hmm. starting to say, fix the problem, please. Like, let's, let's go actually jointly lower risk. Quit identifying, yeah. start lowering. Let's get these things right. patched. Mm -hmm. Let's go mobilize yeah. teams. Mm -hmm. Let's get in front of this before we're way behind it. So we, we've seen that very acutely in the last couple of months where people want, are just tired of hearing about these dumb printers. They're just tired of it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I mm -hmm. want them wiped out. Go patch them, get them done. And that's the expectation these days. There's no money to, to re replace the printer, but there's a lot of um, focus on taking care of those legacy systems if, now that we can do it. Yeah. And is it the same approach, kind of low hanging fruit as far as what, what they're going to try to go fix initially? Do you take that similar approach? Let's go get that low hanging stuff with brain dead. Let's go do that. Is that kind of the approach? Yep. That's exactly it. We were, um, we worked on a hydroelectric facility. Uh, the only thing you could see from the outside was the print server. They were properly segmented. <laughs> they had all the Purdue model stuff set up exactly how you would want it, except for the one printer. Well, let's go take care of that. Number one, let's tuck it back where it should go. Number two, let's make sure it's patched. Let's make sure it's, it's fixed and it's not, you know, so addressable, so easily found. Mm -hmm. So if you yeah. can do those things, then all of a sudden your, your attack surface, <laughs> the attacky thing, um, is a lot is. smaller again. The attack thingy. Yeah, the attack thing. Yeah. It's smaller again. If you, if you tuck that little guy in, that mm -hmm. little printer, and you, you patch it, now you've, you've got a much more resilient. And you can go from a you know, risk of 10 down to risk of 2 really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So as, you know, you know, you take everything that you, you've talked about during this uh, conversation and, you know, look, looking, looking at where we were and where we are, where do you, where do you see us in the next, in the next couple of years? Do you, do you see more improvement from the manufacturer side in terms of the Siemens and Invensys and, and those folks actually creating devices that are more secure or do you see it really still being put on the, the shoulders of the operators or how cybersecurity getting involved? What, what's that future going to look like, do you think? OEM vendors or, or automation vendors are already doing that. They're making better products today than they made before. 
where was I? I was somewhere and heard Megan Stanford from Schneider talk. And she was like, we want to know where these vulnerabilities are in our products so we can go fix them. Please highlight that. Mm-hmm. Force it on us. The more you ask clients, the, the better we'll be. They want to be doing that earnestly. The problem is, even if they fix every product they're selling today, we still have 45 years of automation excellence that's going to live in that world until it's time to replace mm-hmm. it. So even if the automation vendors totally... Um, revamp their programs, we have a whole earth full of stuff that just won't get touched. So until we can really make viable progress, it's going to fall to the operators. It's going to fall to the network teams Mm -hmm. hiding this stuff until we can get in the right patch program. So for me, I'm seeing a real, uh, I'm very optimistic that security can take the OT conversation for everywhere but one vehicle, and that's vulnerability management and patching. That needs to be a standalone team inside of an operator. They need to be able to be cross-functional. They don't need to be siloed inside of cyber or siloed inside of engineering. And they need to be global in nature. So they need to be able to to pivot and go find these things. What we found that manufacturing site in the Ohio River Valley, right? 30,000 CVEs. You can't can't just dump that into your environment that that does CVEs today. You can't do it. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's going to overrun it. You're going to piss a bunch of people off and then you're going to mute everything that you don't want to touch and then you're going to forget to ever unmute it, right? Snore for three years, five years. (laughs) We can't do that. So those teams need to live on their own and be able to go impact change, do a crown jewel analysis, understand what's important and be able to go fix it. We create, um, when we build vulnerability management programs for clients, we create three buckets. The first one is the things you've patched so you can show progress. Most corporations, when they see those big numbers, they're like, oh, you're not moving the needle at all. Let's show where it didn't move the needle. Mm-hmm. The second bucket is the things that are coming up. We know we've got a, a, an outage window in Seattle. We're going to get to Seattle in, in March. We know we have an outage window in Texas in April. We're going to go there in April. Like, and, and showing and publicizing what you're going to be doing. That way, when something flips, when something shifts, when something comes forward, something pushes back, you can, you can migrate and work your teams accordingly. And then the last bucket's a big one, is the oh no, never go bucket. We're not going to do this. And then you're developing yep. your risk transfer methodology, whatever it is, to terminate it, to transfer it, whatever. You're showing that most importantly to your legal counsel. We have decided to accept these risks. This will cost to remediate these activities $200 million, whatever it is. We're not going to do that today. And if we get hacked, we're choosing to accept that. Please increase our firewall budget. Like that's, that's what you have to do. So mm-hmm. then we can show progress and we can start to build that mojo of, Hey, we've done all the, the low hanging fruit. We've got all the cameras, the printers, all that kind of stuff. Now we're taking on some more important pieces and then you're really lowering risk. And that's what yep. we've, we've seen positive. Yeah. And even with the never bucket, they still need to understand where that stuff is, right? So there's still a need and desire to see it and know where the yeah. heck it is so I can For put sure. it in that bucket. Is that safe to say? Oh, yeah. If you don't know what's in the bucket, it's yeah. not a bucket. <laughs> if you right. don't know what's there, you, you can't call it a risk, um, a risk mitigation because you, you, you just can't, right? You have to be able to identify it. And that way, if the IR teams or the, the operations teams come in, you can point them to where to go. But you have to have a, a, a seat in that game. And if you don't know what the assets are, you don't have a seat. 
that's a, a bad actor's dream, right? You've got all these devices that are really vulnerable and you don't know where any of them are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guarantee they do. And maybe Shodan even does. Uh, and they're going to go ahead and go after those. You know, you, you made a really interesting point that these, these you know, manufacturers of these systems, these OEM systems, they're, they, they want to do the right thing. But even if it was tomorrow and they, they release these just absolutely, completely secure systems, it's not like all the existing systems are going to be washed out. We still have all these legacy devices to deal with it. It made me think of that. Remember that movie Space Cowboy with Clint Eastwood? And so it, it was like from it was like from the 90s. Or it, 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 it's OK. It's a good movie. But uh, the idea was they were these astronauts during like the Apollo era. And they had built this satellite system and they had written the program. I don't know what it was, assembly or, or cobalt, maybe who knows. And it was up in space and there was nobody left that knew how to fix it. So they had to pull all these guys that had been retired for the last 25 years, stick them in a, a space shuttle and put them out to space so they could fix the satellite. That was the, that was the premise of <laughs> yeah. the story. Um, but it, there, there's a lot of that. And I, I remember um, back in pro- probably, you know, 2000, 2002 timeframe, going to some of these companies that had Windows NT 4.0 as the operating system for some of these critical assets. And they were, at the time, it had, it had been end of life for probably 15, 20 years. And I said, no, oh, we'll probably won't see that too much more in the future. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was with a customer who still has not just Windows NT 4.0, but Windows NT 3.51, which I think is almost 30 years and end of life, which is just nuts. So these things are out there. They're not going anywhere. So to your point, man, y- you better have a list and that thing better be on that list. So at least you know about it if you're if you're still not going to fix it. We found um, horror stories. We found active credentials or AD credentials, right? That were older than Active Directory. Oh my God. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So they've been hard coded <laughs> in whatever system they were using before. I don't know how that happened. And for some reason, and then migrated over to AD sometime. And because of that, it, it had a, a creation date older than them. So, and that was like, what, 93? When did that come out? Yeah. 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 About, yeah. About then. Yeah. 89 yeah. was the wow. credentials. And they were still there. Jeez. The, the password was not as complex as you would have wanted it. <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty common on the OT industrial side, too. And well, Sean, I tell you, we could, talk uh, a whole lot more. Uh, But as we kind of kind of wrap things up, you know, obviously you are a trusted advisor for a lot of companies. You are an expert in this industry. I don't know if our audience has ever been able to see Sean talk and and it's, you you just have so much knowledge. And, And as, as you, as we kind of say goodbye on this episode, what would be just a few, you know, points of advice you would give to all those operators out there, especially our listeners who might be on the OT industrial ICS side? Any any just words of wisdom you might kind of convey before we wrap up here today? You know, it's a it's a people process and technology movement. It's not one or the other. Mm. You can't just build a policy and expect people to blindly follow it. Um, you can't just, you know, hope that you create a vulnerability management program and you don't tell anyone that's not going to work. You can't buy tech and just hope it's going to do its thing, right? Getting sticky here and and getting showing progress there takes a movement from all three of those parts. And there are definitely mm. people out there that are willing to help advance all of those things at the same time. Um, when we see too much of a whack-a-mole approach, it's like, I would say with the 200 clients we've worked with, there's been only a handful that have really nailed that. And been very mm-hmm. um, fluid and bespoke about how they're handling their own company and how they're they're vocalizing programs, vocalizing new tech resources. 
taking a moment to be thoughtful there will lead a lot of dividends in the next three to five years. That's, that's awesome. Great advice. So Sean, if people want to learn more about what Optiv's doing in this space or maybe get in touch with you uh, directly, what, what's the best way to go around that? I'm like Coach Prime. I'm easy to find. LinkedIn, I'm, I'm out there. There's one other Sean Tufts. He's in Seattle. I have to call him the Sean Tufts after the Broncos lost the dogs. <laughs> um, shout out the Sean Tufts. So yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and then the Optiv site has a really good OT platform. We built it there and it's, it's great. Optiv.com, I think backslash OT and all of our resources, mm-hmm. case studies are right there. You can, you can get in touch with Optiv persona right from that window as well. What a great discussion, Sean Tufts. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really, really appreciate that. And remember everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive full scope and unified security management for the extended internet of things. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, Sean Tufts, we greatly appreciate that. And until we meet again, everybody, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos. We'll see you all next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast.